Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Broadcasting again from my hometown of Los Angeles. We've had a beautiful week here. I know the east coast of the country's been freezing and blanketed in snow and hurricanes and blimey. But over here, it has been absolutely gorgeous. As you know, at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and um, in our consulting business, we champion entrepreneurs, startups, early stage, doesn't matter, all small businesses, no matter where you are in the world, and we're heard right around the globe at the same time every week. So if you're listening for the first time, we welcome you. We hope you enjoy the show. We try to give you as much information as we can in this hour, and we talk to some of the most interesting people on the planet. Over the last couple of years, we've done I think about 115 or so interviews, and if you go through them, they are all absolute experts in their field. So if you didn't hear them the first time around, go into the archives, and uh, you can get great advice on all sorts of subjects. Thanks for all your emails. We love to get the feedback, and it helps us put the show together, and we really appreciate the fact that you enjoy the show. This week... I had the pleasure of spending some time with an incredible, really genuine guy who demonstrates that you can be tough, smart, and compassionate. You know, every little while you you meet somebody that you really hit it off with, you're sort of on the same page and everything together for 50 years. Well, Simon Tresalian was a deep cover operative for British Secret Service for about 20-odd years, a spook working in nasty places like Bosnia and all sorts of other uh, dangerous war zones with very nasty and dangerous people like, for example, the Taliban. He's also the head of a group of operatives that infiltrate pedophilia gangs in Asia and they rescue kidnapped children. Now, This story really got to me, and I didn't know, but um, I can't remember the exact numbers he told me, but there's about 2 million children, young children, kidnapped or pushed into prostitution or into um, uh, child labour every year. And he leads this group that goes in and pinches them out from the bad guys. And uh, he's in Los Angeles because he's working with a screenwriter to bring his new book, The Order of Nephilim, to the screen. And uh, I've had a glance at the book, and it looks great. People are saying that uh, uh, this is one to really watch. Uh, The idea of Nephilim, it it goes back way, way back. I know it's in the Bible, but I don't know where it goes back before that. And it's a composition of uh, hybridization the combining of human DNA and spirit with that of another spirit creation that doesn't appear to us to exist in this physical earth. It's a bit um, space-agey for me, but I've kind of got the feeling of it. Simon's book is incredible, so much so it's already a bestseller and it's been likened to a cross between the Da Vinci Code and the born identity. And Simon has been described as the new Dan Brown. He is a cool guy. We spent many, many hours over some beautiful wine sitting um, on the beach at Malibu the other day, and we had a, the hours just raced by. And uh, what I can tell you about this guy is that he's, um, he's genuine. His exploits have been unbelievable, remarkable, and he's worked to rescue kids is heart-wrenching, and I'm going to work with him. We're going to try and raise a million dollars to enable him to continue this incredible work, 
up till now, all the people working on this have paid their own way. And, uh, you know, so they've got to go off and earn money so they can't do it full time. But he and I really hit it off, and I'm hoping to have Simon on the program in a couple of weeks. He's been really busy um, doing the, um, the Hollywood scene. But watch out for that. And if you can um, get on and have a look, the book is called, I had it a second ago, but I seem to have lost it, um, The Order of the Nephilim. So that's N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M. So see if you can get a hold of it. Those who downplay the importance of alternative energy, and I keep hearing all the time that, um, you know, alternative energy is beaut, but it's only a little piecemeal thing that doesn't do much, um, you know, particularly putting down solar energy, need look no further than to realise they are wrong than Elon Musk's solar city. And now Google's investing $80 million in new solar plants in Arizona and California which will be able to power more than 17,000 homes. It's part of a $400 million deal with the investment firm KKK. These plants will be operational in January 2014, and Google's already pumped more than $1 billion, with a B, dollars into clean energy projects, from wind farms to powering their own data centres. So more people did that we would be in a much cleaner world and have much less risk from global warming. And while we're on the subject of Google, we've been speaking for the last few weeks about the changes in media power from the traditional television networks to digital platforms such as Google and Twitter. I've mentioned to you that these companies have entered into huge advertising deals with big agencies dragging tens of millions, in fact, hundreds of millions of dollars away from traditional advertising. Now, only a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the headline that proclaimed that the publicist Google deal for tens of millions of dollars was broadcast TV's worst nightmare. This week's headline is Google's $100 million deal with publicists or to terrify TV execs. This new deal, what it does, it gives Google a pivotal foothold in its campaign to capture the advertising dollars that have traditionally been spent with television and other traditional media. You know, the media that talks at you and not with you. And one thing today, we want to be spoken with, not to. Now, this advertising will be spent not only on Google's banner and mobile advertising networks, but on sites like Google+, Hangouts, and most importantly, YouTube. Can't believe how big YouTube is. But this deal gives publicists both the scale and the savings offered by television, two of the primary reasons major media buyers spend their budgets on TV or have spent their budgets on TV, despite overwhelming evidence now that Americans spend more of their free time online than they do plonked in front of a television set. To add to the TV execs' pain, television ratings company Nielsen has now announced that it will place its measurement tags on YouTube. That'll be a wake-up call for those guys in the, in the networks. Now, this dramatic switch of advertising dollars, it, it demonstrates that videos such as um, 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 Dove's Real Beauty Sketches, for example, can attract substantial audiences. And more importantly for an advertiser, they can own the experience from start to finish. If you haven't seen Dove's Real Beauty Sketches, it's actually pretty cool. An FBI-trained forensic artist works with Dove to conduct a social experiment to illustrate the ongoing struggle that women have with recognising their own beauty. It's in a compelling short film and it explores how women view their own beauty in contrast to what others see. So women are asked to describe themselves as they see themselves and the forensic artist draws women as they are described. 
and then this is contrasted with how they actually look and how others see them. And the differences are extraordinary. So many beautiful women don't see themselves anything like they look to everyone else. Problem is, there's a bunch of ugly women who think they look better than they actually do. (laughs) What's even more extraordinary is that the video has earned 56 million viewers. Now, just to put that into some perspective, that's more than the eight final episodes of the huge hit Breaking Bad combined. So this is is one giant ad. And uh, more viewers than the last eight episodes of Breaking Bad combined. Wow. TV execs really have a reason to be worried. Traditional television, I've been saying this for years, is a dinosaur. As you know, this um, program salutes entrepreneurs. We love winners. And we also love um, people who try their damnedest to win and maybe fail the first few times. We just love people who get up there and are willing to have a go. This week, Evan Spiegel rejected a $3 billion acquisition approach from Facebook for his company, Snapchat, which is just under two years old. It's a messaging service. $3 billion. No, thank you. He's been working on this for two years. The company's growing very quickly. The usage currently at about 350 million messages a day. And the 23-year-old Spiegel is betting that Snapchat's numbers will grow even more rapidly and justify an even bigger offer. Wouldn't it be great to be 23 and be offered $3 billion? Trouble is, you don't want to hang on too long because (laughs) you never know what's going to happen. The company specialises in mobile messages, including texts and photographs. And the cool thing about it is they disappear after a few seconds, making it extremely popular among teenagers and young adults who want to send things to their friends but they don't want them to hang around forever. So $3 billion for a company that doesn't have any revenue somehow seems out of kilter. However, when you consider Twitter, which is unprofitable, and it's a short messaging service, is valued at $25 billion, no profit, and Pinterest, which has no revenue, is valued at $4 billion, God, I'm constantly hearing stories from the financial people who say this financial system is unsustainable. And when I hear about three companies that between them do not make a dollar, and these three companies who don't make a single solitary dollar are worth $35,000 million. What? begin to start thinking maybe this system isn't sustainable. There's a really great article during the week that was entitled The Real Reason New College Grads Can't Get Hired. I found this really interesting because my experience with college grads is pretty limited um, to people that I've come across but and to my son's experience as a final year student at George Washington University and his friends. My experience is that they're all extremely worldly very articulate, extremely knowledgeable, not only on academic subjects, but on the world in general. And they might be a trifle selfish, but I think they're great human beings. However, this article suggests that employees, employers are finding that entry-level candidates are totally clueless about the fundamentals of office life. A survey by Workforce Solutions at St. Louis, St. Louis, Community College found that more than 60% of employers say that applicants lack communication and interpersonal skills. These managers also say that today's applicants cannot think critically or creatively, solve problems or write well. Now, my first impression was that Workforce Solutions Group's totally out of touch and their study doesn't reflect the overall graduate pool. However, Attico which, as you know, is one of the world's largest staffing companies, has produced similar results. 
It seems that bosses are not as concerned with the lack of math and science skills as they are with the lack of organisational and interpersonal proficiency. Employers say that their top priorities in new hires are team players, problem solvers who can plan, organise and prioritise their work. This is much more important to employers than technical and computer-related know-how. Employers also want new grads who have completed a formal internship before commencing full-time work. One obvious problem that Harris Interactive found was the huge gap between the students' perceptions of their abilities and the company manager's assessment of those same abilities. Now, one of the things I think these surveys do highlight is the substantial difference between the level and type of education provided at the best colleges and that obtained by students at the average university. This week, this week seems to be all about Google. This week in Ignition 2013, it was shown that Google is now bigger than both the whole magazine and the whole newspaper industry with revenues in, in excess of $60 billion. Sometimes we just forget about how enormous Google really is. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and the whole reason that we're here is to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bobbitbobpritchard.com, and we will answer you on air or email you directly. And we're the number one show in the world on radio for entrepreneurs. So no matter where you are on the planet, we really appreciate you listening. Now, probably the most important question that should be asked by marketers and financial controllers and the chief technology officers should be, what's the ROI on every initiative we're taking? I asked this the other day at a speech I gave in downtown LA, and um, usually the marketers, you get a blank stare because they're too bloody lazy to do it or too stupid. You get a blank stare from the financial controller because instead of demanding an ROI and a measurement system before approving a budget, they just haggle about the gross number and say, okay. And the technology guy, well, I found that they're just really not quite sure what the hell it's got to do with them. Well, the reality is that the financial guy should demand that information. The IT guy should put in place the mechanism to measure it. And the marketing guy should need it to improve his efficiency and effectiveness. My guest after the break is Jeff Winsper, president of Black Inc., a marketing and entrepreneurial veteran, also a great guy. He's developed a reporting suite based on software as a service, or in other words, you know, demand on-demand software, which delivers the hard data that the C-suite should want to know and marketing teams occasionally have been asking for. But it is essential to people's success. And apart from being um, extraordinarily clever, Jeff is a really hell of a nice guy. You're listening to Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. And I will be back with you right after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You 
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is a segment of the show where we talk to people who have achieved success. You know, people that are making a real difference in the world, and we try to find out what it is that makes them tick and that we can learn from. As you know, this program is all about assisting entrepreneurs to learn from others so we just don't make those same mistakes. One of the things that's critical for all entrepreneurs is to measure the results of everything that they do. It's only by measuring everything that we do that we can determine what's working and not what's not working and what are the best alternatives we need to pursue to move forward. As you know, if you're a regular listener, I am vehemently critical of entrepreneurs and marketers because too few spend far too little time evaluating their product in the marketplace or the marketing that they pursue. I think too many marketers are lazy, take the easy solution and don't evaluate the return on investment of every marketing initiative that they undertake. So if you want to be successful, the very first step is to be totally honest with yourself in every aspect of your product, project. Probably the most important question that should be asked by marketers, however more often than not is not, is what's my marketing ROI? I gave a speech two days ago to a room full of hotel people, which were managers and finance people and technology people, and I asked them if they measured the return on investment of every initiative they took. The answer from the marketing people was, well, no, it's not possible. And the accounting and technology people sort of sat there and said, well, it's nothing to do with us, it's not our responsibility. The reality is that it's all their responsibility. The marketers should do it automatically, and the financial people who approve the budgets these marketers put forward should ensure that they understand the effectiveness of every dollar that they spend. And the technology people have the tools to measure everything that the marketers do, but don't. So when marketing people say something can't be measured, don't believe it. It's simply bullshit. So how can marketers answering the what's my marketing ROI question? Swiftly, accurately, and how does this data get delivered to the people that are making the decisions in the C-suite? Now, for any of you who are listening that don't know what the C-suite is, it's it's everybody that's got a title that starts with C, CEO, CFO, CTO, CMO, there's a whole bunch of them. The suits, the guys that walk into the corner office in suits. So imagine a system that takes business big data across the many different systems and the silos and harmonizes it against 50 interdependent KPIs to determine marketing contribution to the business. With digital techniques, everything's measurable. Everything. And CMOs suddenly become accountable. Ha, I can see half the marketing population of a of America being fired tomorrow, and this results in a whole slew of new questions such as where did the return come from, who did it come from, when can I expect it, etc. It might also hasten our reticence to get away from such independence on traditional company customer communication. Now, on the line to answer these and other industry questions, if Jeff... Winsper, who's president of Black Inc. This guy's smart. And he's a long-time marketing leader who's developed a reporting suite based on software as a service, or in other words, demand software, which delivers the hard data that C-suite and marketing teams have been, or at least should have been, asking for. He's also a member of the Marketing Accountability Standards Board. I don't know what they do and recently spoke in Zurich at the Worldwide Partners Agency Forum about marketing return on investment. Hi, mate. How are you? Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thank you, Bob. Pleasure to be here. 
Mate, I've spent years mailing, railing against marketers because I think the majority of them take the easy way out and are happy not to have the results of their um, initiatives measured. You know, it's very safe to buy a television commercial and I don't, you know, and I can buy television because I really don't understand this new media digital stuff. And I, I appreciate that that's a pretty sweeping statement. But in the main, do you agree with that or disagree with it? Yeah, in general, marketers are very challenged uh, for the reasons you brought up earlier to fundamentally measure their success and measure it through the eyes of finance. Sure. And that, that, that's critical because that's where the that's budget battles begin. Yep. Yep. So do you think marketers are born lazy? <laughs> well, <clears throat> not, not necessarily. I mean, their ilk is, in their, and obviously their intent is to do what's best for the company. They're not, they're not necessarily lazy. I think that when challenged with trying to prove uh, fiscal performance, they do curl up a little bit. And part of that is because they have been asked this question in the past but have gotten away with using squishy qualitative language uh, that actually just kicks the can down the road, but that's catching up to them. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. I, I think also that marketers tend to shy away from learning too much about what's happening in technology because it's, it's, it's not their natural field of understanding. And I guess it is difficult and things are changing quickly, but it's the technology that's enabling them to deliver better results, better communication with customers, and, uh, you know, they just don't quite get it, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think the uh, it's a good point. I, I think that if you look at all the, the functions and departments at a large organization, mo- many of them to date have already embraced technology and they are more automated than less. So, for example, sure. HR or finance or supply chain or manufacturing, and it goes on and on. Sales is too. Marketing is one of the last adopters for technology and specifically trying to figure out how to automate their manners their processes, and that is changing. Uh, that is why there is a large uh, adoption around marketing automation, for example. Yeah. Uh, so they're moving in the right direction, but like any other early stage adopters, they're kind of feeling their way through it. And secondly, I would say there is a plethora of little point solutions popping up everywhere around the marketing group. And because marketers as leaders aren't historically trained to understand how to leverage that technology to, as a means to the greater end, they are then adopting little point solutions, but it doesn't roll up to show the bigger picture, again, seen through the eyes of finance. Yeah, it's interesting because if you look back 30 years, there was always marketing people on the boards of companies. Now there's not a marketing person within CUI of a board of companies because they don't add anything. Um, most of the people on the board are financial people and marketing from a board level seems to have lost its credibility because they're, you know, we're spending all this money and where are the results? And, and I just think that, um, marketers have been their own worst enemies. Yeah, there, um, it, it is a, it is a, uh, it's a sad state, yes, from that perspective. There, there's only approximately 7% of all officers that have a marketing function uh, at, at the organizations of the Fortune 500. That's down dramatically from yeah. your point earlier, 30 yeah. years. And, and yes, finance and operations, in some case sales, runs the roost. And so marketers don't have a seat at the table like they used to. For those that used to have a seat at the table, they've been marginalized. They've been considered cost-based centers, not revenue-generating centers. Absolutely. Okay. Starting a business is easy. Getting it going, developing the product, whatever it is, raising funds, determining strategy, and actually getting it launched and profitable, even more importantly, is unbelievably difficult. So you've been successful a number of times. What are the major challenges that you've personally faced in starting a business that perhaps our listeners who are entrepreneurs can listen and not make the same mistake? Mm-hmm. So um, any entrepreneur that wants to start an organization or currently is running an organization but wants it to grow, 
needs to balance a few things. One is keeping the eye on the prize, which is basically trying to grow the business, generate its revenues and its profits accordingly, but at the same time, not get persuaded from the normal business conditions away from the vision in which you actually started the company for in the first place. Because if you follow your passion, uh, the business will fall into its place. And what we find, and, and I, you know, I've, I've sort of overcome these personal hurdles as well, is that not all startup owners are sort of these big picture visionary leaders. Yeah. Uh, they, tend to, they tend to start a business because they see, oh, I don't know, a white space or an opportunity, maybe even a better mousetrap. But during the pursuit to solve this one challenge, what happens is they expect or they, you know, they, get, they, they get attracted to many more challenges and it's very distracting to them. So you've got to remain as focused as possible. Uh, that would be sort of my first advice. The 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 second thing is, you know, is is that you can't you can't expect perfection. Not everyone's perfect. Not even all organizations, as well as we want to respect some of the large ones, they're not perfect. But you can create a culture of excellence. Yeah. So if you expect perfection, the former most likely will set you up for failure. The latter, being expect excellence, will set will set you up for success. Okay. Yeah. We, we often hear that um, there's far too much emphasis by most entrepreneurs on continually developing the product or the project, whatever it is, and putting all their eggs in that basket and spending all their money on a better and better and better and better mousetrap rather than conserving some of that money, getting the early stage um, product out there into the marketplace and spending money on marketing it and, and getting joint venture partners or whatever. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that? I, I do. I think um, if, you, if you take a page out of the book called um, The Lean Startup, it's, a, it's yep. great, excellent advice for people. So just because you're in love with your product doesn't mean, A, other people are. And so if, if you are more of an outside-in thinker as opposed to an inside-out thinker, sure. otherwise known as... If you really keep your, your ear to the ground and the pulse of the customer and the prospect's needs, you may have to, in some cases, kill the product yep. or you need to sort of pivot. Oh, and that's the point of the book. Yeah, so when you pivot, basically what you're asking yourself is, is there any core equity that I've built in this product up to this point? It's not gaining the traction that we desired on the forecast, but there may be an opportunity that's popping over here as an adjacent opportunity where you believe there's higher growth opportunity. So what happens is as an entrepreneur, it's hard to accept that what your baby wanted to be when you first built it is not what people think is cute. You've got to address it differently and not over-invest in that particular product over a period of time. Now, this rule also applies for many large organizations as well. And in fact, it's probably more pervasive in those large organizations. There's plenty of companies that spend tons of money in their R&D focused on what would be that core flagship offering. But it is so overdeveloped that the actual value and return is not nearly as much as the investment. So, for example, uh, even even if you think about Microsoft, people don't even scratch a percentage of the functionality of Microsoft Office or yeah. even that they applicate. Yet they keep continue pouring money in it. And of course, they have some interesting, weird rules for um, you know launching new products of which you can't use the previous because it's not compatible. But aside from that, uh, <laughs> you know that's part of the strategy. To, to <laughs> But that, but that being said, yeah, the people tend to uh, keep their head down and not their head up. I, I think the comment about pivoting is interesting because most entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that I talk to seem to think that pivoting is sort of a minor deviation from what your original um, task was, where in fact it can be quite a radical departure from, from um, whatever the original product was. Uh, agreed. In fact, uh, we've experienced that here where you know you you believe you have a good hypothesis for what a product should be, um, you know you you put your earnest and in, in effort and energy and, and all the love into it, and then the the pivot could be a degree of five or it could be a three hundred and sixty degree. Yeah. So you just you just got to be mindful that if you're going to shift gears quickly, what does that mean in terms of uh, managing your existing base that already had a set expectation. But really what you're saying is there's something much greater out there 
okay, that is expecting something completely different than what you're offering, or maybe slight, you know, not completely, but you know, slightly different enough that you just have to suck it up yeah. and make the change. And if it means organizational change or investment change, you just got to do it. Okay, so what is it? You're with Black Ink now. Exactly, what is Black Ink? What do you do? Tell us. Tell everybody how you can be of benefit to them. Yeah, certainly. So, so Black Ink is a brainchild from about 25 years being in the advertising and marketing industry. Uh, and it, we decided to, to launch a, a company called Black Ink, and it provides technology and software solutions to help CFOs and CMOs together partner in measuring and monitoring and optimizing their marketing investments. And part of the reason why we chose to go down this path is because if you think about some of the challenges that a vendor, like an agency, yep. faces when dealing with a CMO, which we've already established is already challenged internally, yep. we, we end up being a cost structure as well. So as much as we believe that we're trying to make a difference, and people do, it, it still doesn't answer the question, it. So, for example, when we're, we were in, uh, running campaigns, per se, the CEO would ask the question, will it work? And... You know, and it is ROI, but no one really wanted to address it head on. And yeah. usually agencies would say things like, oh, don't worry, it'll work. And it worked for this other company and it'll work for you. But the fundamental truth is no one at the table uh, could sit there empirically and prove what it could do. So we decided to define it, measure it, and monitor it. And it, again, is the ROI. So right. we, we took all the, all the learnings for 25 years. Uh, around uh, investment strategies, portfolio strategies, go-to-market strategies uh, at Al, and build out algorithms and models to actually prove empirically the value in which marketing contributes to the business as seen through those major KPIs that an executive like a CFO or CEO would care about. I, it is a product that is desperately needed from my experience. You know, as I've we, we've spoken before the show, and uh, you know my opinion of most marketers isn't that high. <laughs> and being one myself, um, and I think it's it, it's a great initiative that's desperately needed. Now, there's a lot of buzz around today. We we hear about big data constantly, and I went to a um, presentation the other day about Singapore and all of the big data that is coming in from every source and how it's analysed and how it's making every everything just more efficient, run better from where you can pick up a cab to how the public transport system works. So it's going to change the, the way we operate and the effectiveness and the efficiency of everything from of businesses and cities and countries for that matter. How would you describe big data and how can a business make the most of the data that they have access to? Mm-hmm. And can they get access to data outside their own internal data? Yes. Well, the, the notion of big data, the theme called big data, is obviously uh, much more prevalent today. However, data collection and the amount of data collection and the type of data collection has been around for many, many years. Sure. Part, part, of, part of the reason why it's becoming a topic today is because the amount of which this data is being produced by fundamentally consumers, uh, more so in part because of the channels that are available. So the, the big data theme, recently, inter- interestingly enough, is starting to become slightly more negative. It's becoming more like, oh, you have a big data problem and big data this, and you know, you're going to be able to come to these big data issues. And, and so uh, it sounds like it's uh, forbidding. Uh, we, we actually have a contrarian perspective. So we're of the belief that more data is better and that the companies and the individuals need to embrace it. So we want to get it all, we want to make it grow, and then you want to have a data-driven culture. So therefore, the more data that you have on your consumers or the behaviors or the price points or the path of purchase or what have you, enables the organization to analyze the business and the customers, the marketplace, more so than they could have ever before. If, in fact, you understand to have all this data and you make strong decisions, it tends to be more science-based than gut-based. There's plenty of studies to prove that if you're a data-driven organization and you analyze it correctly, you make better choices. And, and if you think about... Go ahead. The ability to analyze data today is just infinitely superior than it was even two years ago. Yes, uh, no doubt. It, companies like Zappos, 
Procter & Gamble, Salesforce.com, you name it, they're all leveraging big, big data to help acquire and serve and grow their customer base. Yeah. So they're well-positioned compared to the competition. Sure. You asked a question about uh, <clears throat> how you define big data. Well, big data isn't necessarily just volume, which people associate it with. It also means type. So where the big data is uh, occurring now is what's called unstructured data, pictures, uh, unstructured data, let's say, in social media. And because marketers are really now having conversations directly with consumers where it never really could before, yeah, the onus is on them to figure out how to take that such data and apply it to business rules and decisions. Yeah. Um. So what are the what are the um, issues that are faced by business leaders when it when you're looking at um, trying to measure the success of your marketing initiatives? And I regard this might be interesting from to get your perspective. My view of marketing is that marketing is every action that you take that in any way impacts that consumer. Now that's a very broad. Um, spectrum of things but it doesn't matter whether it's an ad in the LA Times or whether it's giving somebody a free drink in the restaurant that to me is part of the marketing overall marketing and therefore the results of that should be measured what what do you, what's your view on that yeah so yeah marketing is a social science and so any investment, any touch point, any action to your point, whether it's words, pictures, email, ads, um, social, net promoter score, it doesn't matter. Yeah. There are, there's about 60 plus channels today. There's only about five available about uh, 40 years ago. So the explosive amount of channels, the explosive amount of volume of communications in said channels, and when the consumers decide to engage with brands as they see fit, this, of course, becomes part of the uh, opportunity around big data, and some people could argue it's a challenge. And you would ask the question about, you know, marketing's challenges. And uh, I'll just say marketing as a leadership has a challenge and marketing as a function has a challenge, yeah. in part because the functional part, if you think about investments, it's almost like uh, where do you want to place your best bet? There's many ways to communicate with the consumer directly. There's many ways they can consume, you know, communicate directly to you. But you need to figure out how to put your dollars in the areas in which you know you're going to get the best yield. The, the challenge with the marketer uh, is that they have uh, continuously been challenged to increase their budgets over baseline because they're still seen as a cost center. Yet, they've got 60 channels to choose from. And yet, the population's growing, and yet the competition isn't going to die. So yeah. they're, they're seen as cost. They haven't proven their value. Their budget's are, you know, inching up. They're still seen as a cost of sale as opposed to an investment ahead of the actual purchase. And they can't figure out how to actually have quantitative discussions with finance to let them know what the R is. Everyone knows what the I is of ROI, yeah. but the R is the challenge. And until you actually flip that conversation on its head, and stop talking about, uh, oh, I don't know, percentage of sales this quarter, this month, this product, and you talk about if you give me more, I'll give you some in return, incremental, that you not normally would receive, you're still going to be part of the 93% that do not have a seat at the table. Yeah. I, see, I would argue, <laughs> maybe incorrectly, but I, w I would argue that the cost of communicating one-on-one -on -one with a client and understanding who that client is, where they live, what they buy, all of that information that's currently available, the cost of communicating with the client is actually decreasing and decreasing fairly strongly. And yet our marketers are still going out after incremental increases in marketing budgets. And that, to me, demonstrates that they're stupid. Yeah, the actual cost of the channel like email, for example, or yeah. social, it, it, you're right. It's, it's not that expensive. Uh, even, obviously, the dec decreasing cost in Moore's principle, let's say, for advertising and buying GRPs, it does go down. Yeah. But, on, but on the other end of the spectrum, uh, if you have, let's say, a one-to-many play, 
then that means the cost to produce the content, let's say it's a TV commercial, for example, the old days, you know, you could just produce one ad and run it many times. And so, yeah, that's what it is. Now what's happening is you've got the one-to-one thing going on. And so while the channel itself may be cheaper to deploy, the actual content creation for the relevance for each of those on one-to-one actually explodes the other direction. So to create content is human capital. And so human capital, as we know, is not cheap and it's not automated. So that's why you're seeing that costs of campaigns in some cases are are getting greater. Now, you got to weigh that out against what the returns are because just because you could be more efficient doesn't necessarily mean you're more effective. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I think CFOs, what they care about is, uh, you know, two things, quite frankly. What was the dollar of the last, uh, what's the value of the dollar last spent uh, versus the dollar of the next spend? So yeah. they, they, they got to balance that out. And unfortunately, marketers can't really answer both of those equations. And so therefore, sitting across the table, you are 100% to zero until you can prove something in return. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and, and that makes it because you think a CFO can do many, many things with that dollar. And unfortunately, marketers, yeah, a little bit of hubris, to your point. They just assume that they're going to get their budget baseline plus whatever. But if you think about it from a CFO's perspective, if they have uh, $10 million, they can buy another company, they can buy a fleet of trucks, they can buy sure. cash sure, because they know what the ROI is. And yep. when a marketing guy goes in and says, I need $10 million, the question is, okay, what was the value of the last dollar I gave you? And, oh, by the way, you're asking for more, and I kind of need to know who gave it to me and when I'm going to get it and what's the return. Yep. Understand. Okay, last question. <laughs> With the incredible new technology tools that are out there, what do you predict in the area of marketing return on investment to 214 and beyond? Where are we going here? Great question. The topic is very hot. The need is right there in front of everyone. Yep. The adoption is going to be challenging, uh, in part because... If you are a CMO that wants to hide and maybe be afraid of exposing what your R is, there's no way in hell you're going to want something to express what that is, right? Absolutely. Uh, now, you're being, now you're being judged. Yeah. Um, but it's going to happen because every other function is judged empirically. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be probably most likely uh, that type of leader most likely will be weaning away very quickly. And you can see it happening now. You can see where more of the CMOs tend to be more business slash data scientist type True. thinkers. Yep. Where the old days, it was like, you know, big hat, small guns, spend a lot of money on brand. And, you know, if you see your TV commercial on night, everyone can have a cocktail and say you're great. That, that Those days are waning away very quickly. So on the other end of the spectrum, even if you have a person who may be apprehensive to understand what their ROI is um, and they're definitely afraid to share that to finance, there is a very common practice that occurs every time you're engaged with finance. If for whatever reason you discover that you are red ink and not black ink, finance actually appreciates this. You're not going to get fired they're going to appreciate it because they're going to say, you're doing something about it. And step one is measuring it. Now, Unless you do you, it again next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lose, lose a dollar and make it up in volume, yes. Now, the, uh, but, but the thing is, that it, you know, there's lots of parts of the organization that are red ink. So, yeah. so what they want is they say, okay, now that we have a baseline understanding, informatic understanding of where we stand, you know what's going to happen. They're going to say, well, go get me some black ink. Sure. And if, you are, if you're reporting black ink, you know what they're going to say, which is, go get me more black ink. Yep. So it's, it's okay. It, it, you don't have to be afraid of it, and, and you should embrace it. So the organizations that tend to, to embrace this are either culturally set up, the leadership is willing to understand that their job and livelihood will last a whole lot longer than what is right now the average gestation period of an elephant. I think it's like 40 months for, for CMO. It's pretty short. Um, <laughs> And, and so now what we're going to do is say that it's okay to adopt it and leverage all of the investments you're already doing. I mean, think about it. If you're spending $100 million a year in advertising, or even if you're a small company and yeah. you're spending, let's say, $10,000, for a fraction 
of the investment to know how to spend the balance of the 99.99% puts you in a position of success. Yeah. Like I said before, if you're 100% a zero, you're zero. So it's better to make some investment for measurement and have really uh, hands-on-the-table, quantitative conversations to get it done. So ultimately, I think Black Ink is slightly ahead of the market, which is probably not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Um, and I would have to guess that the embracement of the offering that we have and maybe perhaps others in the future we haven't found somebody quite like us, but in the future, is going to be uh, a very much like a hockey stick. No different than marketing automation was five years ago. Billion-dollar category. It was only a couple hundred million not that long ago, and, and I suspect we'll probably be in that same curve about a year out. Jeff, I thank you very, very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Now, I hope that marketers and those in the C-suite I hope they heed your advice. It certainly would not be before time. Now, if you'd like to know more about Jeff and Black Ink, go to winspur.com. That's W-I-N-S-P-E-R.com. This is Bob Pritchard, and you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. To the Bob Pritchard, straight talking, absolutely no bullshit business show, which is coming to you live every Tuesday night from 5 p.m. here in Los Angeles. So no matter where you are in the world, where you're listening, I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, there's a lot of people go into um, making this show happen. So I'd just like to throw out a couple of thank yous. I'd like to thank um, the panel guys back in Phoenix who um, do a fantastic job and keep me appraised of what's happening. Um, Marty Catewood, who helps me with um, the research and getting uh, product together for the show. And for everybody who um, contributes to the show, I just want to extend a and to the course to the management of Voice America Business. I love them. Fantastic. Now, every week, we try to bring you emails from listeners all over the planet. And... Uh, we try to ensure that we've got a good content of female entrepreneurs because they have, they're a solid basis for the audience of this program and um, they are also the fastest growing area of entrepreneurs, of female entrepreneurs. They're, they are springing up everywhere and we want to support them as much as we can. Now, my first email today comes from Alan Prendergast from Sioux City, Iowa. Not a female, obviously. Dear Bob, thank you for your simple to understand down-to-earth show. It's much more informative than the regular business program. I think that's true. I listened to a program today that was all about uh, a company's share price going up 10 cents and they spent half an hour debating why it went up and what was going to happen to it tomorrow. And the answer is that none of these people have the faintest idea of whatever's going to happen is going to happen. <laughs> um, and... Uh, Alan goes on to say, I began to follow you after I bought a copy of Kick-Ass Marketing a few months ago. It's actually called Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, and I refer to it constantly for my business. Well, thank you. Last week, you talked about the Internet of Everything, and I was intrigued by that because I'd never heard of it before. As I understand it from your explanation, the Internet of Everything will interconnect every appliance and inert object that we have. Everything will talk to everything and we will be able to control our life through a more sophisticated version of the iPad. Well, that'd be about right. I think you've understood that perfectly. Uh, he goes on to say, you mentioned last week there are already several billion objects connected to the Internet of Everything. How fast is this going to develop? Alan, just this week, a company called Quirky, 
I love that name. What a great name for a company, Quirky. Announced the extension of a partnership with GE, where GE committed to building 30 interconnected home gadgets uh, over the next five years. Last week, they released the first batch of four products. There was a desktop widget, a smart egg tray, a smart power strip, and a motion sound light temperature and humidity sensor. You can add to that the refrigerators and the washing machines and the dishwashers and all of those other things. Um, For the next batch of products, GE is making available thousands of its patents and also offering up some of its relationships with suppliers and other support for anybody who builds intelligent products. It'll be an open platform. So they'll be able to integrate those into the household or business environment. I think that's sensational. So as tens of thousands of entrepreneurs begin to create create smart versions of everything, I think the Internet of Everything will grow extremely rapidly. Now, I hope that info, info, oh, excuse me, I got the hiccups. Jeez, Ellen, I hope that information's helpful to you. Since you already have a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, tomorrow morning we will send you a copy of Marketing Magic, a book that I wrote with Brian Tracy, Jay Conrad Levinson and Robert Bly and a few others. I hope you'll enjoy it. I think it's a great book. My second email today comes from George Howard in Gallup, New Mexico, who says, Bob, I really enjoy your show. I'm about to embark on setting up my own small business, and I'm wondering what advice you could give me so I can avoid the most common pitfalls. God, I hope you've got a long time. Um, George, this is something that we talk about very frequently on the show, and I think the most important things are, firstly, to have a clear and detailed business strategy and plan, and not an airy-fairy one that reads well because you want to give it to the bank, but... a business strategy that's actually been thought through and, and makes sense and is practical and stands up to to scrutiny. Secondly, ensure that you really do have a market for your product. I mean, a lot of people develop products that they think there's a market for and when they get out, there isn't. And thirdly, make sure that you've got enough capital to see you through at least the first six months, not counting on every any revenue because trust me, Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. It takes you twice as long. It's twice as hard and twice as expensive, if not three times more expensive, than you ever thought it was going to be. Apart from that, you need to surround yourself with fantastic people, all smarter than you. Market your business very wisely and prudently. Don't spend any money you don't have to. And most important of all, work your ass off. I uncovered an interesting article for a guy who had a small business and he listed the top five things that he would not do if he had his time over. The first one is to ensure that any staff you have have the skills, enthusiasm and motivation to help you succeed. He said he ended up getting people because didn't have much money. He, he put all his money into his product so he took people that weren't as, you know, bought people by price um, and that didn't work out for him so well. The second thing he changed is that he wouldn't have been tempted to pursue every potential source of revenue that crossed his path. You know, there's a dollar there and I need a dollar to pay the rent, so I'll go and chase it. And uh, and if he's had his time over again, he wouldn't have underestimated his startup costs. He um, he underestimated the amount of capital he needed. He accurately estimated the rent and the equipment, the inventory and living expenses and legal expenses, but he seriously underestimated things like marketing, insurance, utilities and the add-on costs on top for wages for staff. So if you're a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com, which is undergoing a bit of an upgrade at the moment and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. If you go onto my website, there's a place where you can subscribe to the newsletter and people come on every day, so please join them. Send in your questions, email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And don't forget to contact me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit 
business radio show for entrepreneurs, the number one business radio show in the world. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at exactly the same time. We'll be here. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope that you have a fantastic and a successful week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.